0: I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I just wanted to encourage you all to watch some of my IG Live videos on Instagram. On Instagram, my accounts are at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. But in case I haven't told you, which it occurred to me that maybe I haven't, On Instagram, every day at 11 o'clock Eastern Time, I interview authors live from my at Zibby Owens account. And to watch it, you just have to open up Instagram. And if you're following me when I'm live, it'll show up on the upper left of your screen in the story section. And it'll say live and there'll be a little red circle. So every day, Monday to Friday, I do an IG Live show. Check it out. I do one to four authors a week. Sometimes the shows become these podcasts. And I also do one on Sundays at 2 with my husband, Kyle. um, And we talk about step-parenting and life and all the rest. So if you haven't watched an IG Live, please do. And also, I have a virtual book club that I hope you know about. This is all on my website, by the way, zibbyowens.com. But check out my virtual book club, which is through a site called BookClubs, with a Z, -Z B-O-O-K-C-L-U-B-Z.com. And no, I didn't make that up after my name, but actually it just worked out perfectly. So go to bookclubs.com, and I'm actually the featured book club on their homepage. So you can just click and you're invited to sign up. Um, I have amazing guests every week, and that meets Tuesdays at 2 p.m., uh, Eastern Time via Zoom. So please don't miss out on all these other offerings for all of you guys who are loyal listeners to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And always feel free to check out my website at zibbyowens.com to find out what I'm up to and what else you can do. Oh, and also sign up for my newsletter. On In my newsletter every week, I give updates on the latest, the book recommendations, all my podcasts, all my IG Lives, my book club, and any other fun information, um, plus usually some list or article or something that I think would be helpful. So um, also sign up for my mailing list if you get a chance. Okay, that's enough for me. Now go listen to this episode. Today's sponsor is Violets Are Blue, which is an organic small batch skincare company that gives back to women in treatment for breast cancer started by a breast cancer survivor herself. 10% of the Violets Are Blue earnings go towards skincare packages that they donated to women on their first day of treatment at Mount Sinai in New York City. For 20% off, use code ZIBBY20, Z-I-B-B-Y 20. I had the best time doing an Instagram Live with Wally Lamb, who is the author of six New York Times best-selling novels. I'll take you there, We Are Water, Wishing and Hoping, The Hour I First Believed, I Know This Much Is True, and She's Come Undone. I know this much is true, and she's come undone. We're both selected for Oprah's book club. Lam also edited, Couldn't Keep It to Myself, and I'll Fly Away, two volumes of essays from students in his writing workshop at York Correctional Institution, which is a women's prison in Connecticut, where he's been a volunteer facilitator for the past 17 years. Sought-after keynote speaker, he has spoken at universities and colleges, libraries, arts and lecture venues, and literary festivals around the country and has won a bazillion awards. His latest project, I know this much is true, is an HBO original limited series, which just aired Lamb is a Connecticut native who holds bachelor's and master's degree in teaching from the University of Connecticut and a master's in fine arts in writing degree from Vermont College. He currently lives in northeastern Connecticut and in New York City and is a parent with his wife, Christine, of three cents. Thank you so much for coming on my Instagram Live. Thank you for coming on Mom's No Time to Read Books. So exciting to have your show, to be able to watch it and read it at the same time. It's really, really a pleasure. So thanks. (laughs)
1: Sure.
0: So just, to, just because the show has just come out, what is it like for you? Your book came out so long ago, and now suddenly here's the show. What does that feel like for you?
1: Uh, well, it's very exciting and has been exciting for a couple of years. I was able to be on the set several times in the past year and working with Mark Ruffalo before that to sort of put everything together and get the right director and so forth. So everything came out beautifully. And, you know, it was a long haul back when, in 1998, when the novel was first published, Oprah picked it up for her book club, like right out of the gate, and it was sold to the movies, and the intention by a major studio that had bought it was to make a two-hour movie. Now, the problem is that it's pretty impossible to turn a 900-page book into a two-hour movie. You know, it's just a, you know, it's a small container to put all those pages into. So it went on for about 15 years and they kept trying to write screenplays and so forth and they couldn't get it to work. And then at the end of 15 years, there was this little thing in my contract with this studio that said if they couldn't make the movie in 15 years, the rights would revert back to me. And so lucky me, along had come, you know, premium series with major actors in them and so forth in those 15 years. So, you know, my agent said, "Okay, let's shop this around as a series, who would you like to play the twins? I said, oh, that's easy. My first choice would be Mark Ruffalo. So she sent him the book. He was filming in Europe at the time. About a maybe a week and a half later, I get this unbelievably sweet email from him saying, you know, Wally, I'm a slow reader. I'm only half of the way through but I already know I want to do this. You know, he said, these are my people. He says, this is the family that I come from and the place I come from. You know, he was talking about, you know, the similarities between my working class background and his. And he just jumped on and was loyal for the next, I think, couple of years until we got the, you know, the right producer and the right director, who is Derek Cienfranc. Amazing, amazing talent between the two of them. And everybody else who, kind of plugged into you know this whole this whole project
0: wow so this is like the one example of why it's great that the film industry can be really slow (laughs) (laughs)
1: because
0: you know it's like you tried to fit a round hole in a square peg 15 years ago and now finally you just didn't know that pegs came in this size so it's great
1: that's exactly right yeah
0: oh fantastic so what's it like so first of all how and I don't only want to talk about the show but it's so Exactly like the book. I was prepared to watch the show and have some sort of interpretation of the book, as so often happens. But this is literally like the same dialogue, the same scenes. How did you get that? How did you do that? <laughs> it's well, impressive.
1: I certainly didn't ask for that. What happened was that Derek, you know, he I I saw that he I saw that he had great instincts right at the beginning, and I had loved some of his earlier films, Lou Valentine and The Place Beyond the Pines. And he said to me, I think maybe the first or second time that we met in New York, he said, you know, he said, I want you to know that whatever this turns out to be, I'm going to honor the story that you created. And my response was, well, that's great. I really appreciate that. But don't forget to make it your own. So, you know, I helped them, you know, sort of take a look at the setting, the Three Rivers, Connecticut, sort of a fictional amalgam of some of the some of the towns in Eastern Connecticut where I grew up and and where I live now. So I did preliminary work with them and then I just let it go. I said, you know, Derek wanted to write uh, the screenplays for the six episodes. And I said, yeah, I don't need to see them. I don't need to be consulted. You make it your own. And I could see when I made those visits to the set while they were filming that, okay, this is gonna be really special. So, yeah, there are changes. You know, the dialogue is pretty much the same dialogue as the book. But he made some, you know, I think he made some really wise changes. And, you know, there's sort of roll out as the episodes continue. But I was perfectly happy with them. I didn't miss what I had written the book that didn't get into the series. But, yeah, all was well.
0: (laughs) Wow. And so what is it like for you sort of sitting on the couch, or I'm assuming? (laughs) What's it like for you just turning on the TV and here is this project that's been in your heart and your world for so long, and suddenly, finally, it's up there. Like, what was that feeling like for you? Did you have like a, and now in quarantine too, you know, I'm sure ordinarily you would have had a big to do, but what was yeah. it like for you?
1: Well, I was invited when they were, when Derek was still editing the episodes, and that was just about the time that the, that the coronavirus was sort of taken over in New York. And it was kind of on my back burner. And Derek invited me and my wife to come in for two different Mondays to a screening place, like an editing studio. And he said, you know, these are still kind of rough cuts, but we want to to show you the series. So we went in on one Monday and saw episodes one through three. And then the following Monday, we saw episodes four, five, and six. My wife went back to Connecticut. I hung around at our little apartment in New York to do some work. And every day I walked out, you know, either to go on the subway or, you know, to the movies or something. And it's like, man, you know, there are more masks today than there were yesterday. So finally, after about, I don't know, four or five days, I said, I think I'd better hightail it (laughs) into quarantine. So uh, luckily, I didn't didn't get the virus while I was hanging around in the city. And so I had that, I had the six episodes sort of, you know, I had seen them, but it was a, a way different thing on Sunday night. We had a we were invited by the producer, Film Nation, to have a toast at so that so the the episode aired at nine and we all convened by Zoom at eight o'clock and you know the actors and the the producer and the director and Mark was there and so forth. And we all just sort of expressed how excited we all were because we could finally share it with everybody else. It had been a it really had been a labor of love for so many people.
0: Wow. Well, congratulations on the show being out in the world to, as the perfect complement to this book, being out in the world. So great Thanks. job. <laughs> congratulations.
1: Thank you, Sidney.
0: So let's go back to the book. So let's teleport back to the late 1990s. Mm-hmm. W- what made you write this book to begin with? Why these characters? Why the twins? Why paranoid schizophrenia? Mm-hmm. What, what drew you to these characters? And tell me about writing the, the book at the beginning.
1: Mm-hmm. My first book, She's Come Undone, was published in 1992, and I had a, a breakfast meeting with my then agent out in California, and she pulls out some, you know, legal-sized paper, and I said, oh, what's that? I was on book tour for She's Come Undone, you know, a, a, a modest little story by Wally Who, you know, and so she said to me that the publisher would like to do a second book with you, and they would be willing to give you some advance money. And I said, "Well, you know, that seems a little backwards to me." I said, "I, you know, I haven't done any work, and they're going to give me money for it." But my agent said, "Oh, well, that's an interesting point of view. Would you like a little bit more Chardonnay?" <laughs> uh, so anyway, I ended up, I ended up signing on the dotted line. And then I went home, and I couldn't think of a damn thing, Zippy. I was like, I was so freaked out that. Uh, you know, I had been paid and I couldn't think of a of a topic. And then one day I was sort of facing desperation at that point. I mean, I was <laughs> I remember I had extracted one of the one of my kids' toys from you know their toy their toy box that they had at that point abandoned. And I one of those little wooden paddles with the, you know, with the yeah. elastic and the rubber ball and so forth. And I had gotten embarrassingly good at, at that, you know. Ninety 95, 95, <laughs> and ninety five. And in that sort of era of panic, I got a little it was almost like a movie in my head, you know, not longer than five or six seconds. And what I saw in that silent movie was a guy in a pickup truck driving on a on a sleepy country road. And I didn't know who he was. I didn't know why he was out driving in the middle of the night when everybody else is home sleeping. And so I started writing in this guy's voice, and it turned out to be an angry voice. And that was the beginning of Dominic, the, you know, who is you know, the main character of the story. And I didn't know at that point he had a brother. I didn't know certainly that he had a twin brother. But the more I wrote, the more that character revealed himself to me. And earlier, uh, about 1988, 89, 90, I had been a high school teacher. I mean, I still was when I started this novel but I was running a writing center and we were writing across the curriculum. So I had a history class come in and they had been studying the Great Depression. And I said, well, I think I'll create a program whereby people who had been teenagers during the Great Depression and are now, you know, elderly, retired and so forth, I'll have them come in and the kids can interview, you know, different, these different subjects. So they came in, there was a three or four day program. And the first day, There was a guy who was, he was a little bit unusual. He didn't say anything. And finally, I said to him, Mr. Mayock, would you like to, you know, tell us your story of growing up during the Great Depression? And at that point, he took off his dark glasses and he had a missing eye. And he uncrooked his arms from, you know, from, you know, he had his hands in his armpits. And I saw that he had a missing hand. And he proceeded to tell us a story about how he had been a pacifist In World War II, and he had studied his Bible. And from that Bible, he had, you know, God had spoken to him that if he could make, uh, you know, a a huge personal sacrifice, then he could stop the war. And so I saw all my my high school students looking at each other like, (laughs) so anyway, he was coming back the next day, but nobody, none of the kids wanted to work with him, they were too freaked out. So I started talking to him and I got to be friends with him and uh, learn a very, you know, his very sad story. He had been locked away in the state hospital for the mentally ill for years, for decades. And he had gotten out back in the 1980s, I think. And so that, you know, Thomas Bursey is an amalgam of this guy, but also he is sort of consumed by the twin thing. And as I realized that Dominic and Thomas were twins, what I began to figure out, and I'm talking about slowly over years, was that the reason for Dominic's anger is that it it sort of covered over his fear. You know, these, these guys had started out as a single fertilized egg that, for reasons we don't know, split apart and became two different people. One of them develops the disease, one of them does not, but is sort of cast into the role of his brother's keeper. But Dominic is reluctant as a brother's keeper. He promises his dying mother that he'll take care of his brother, but that's a pretty big assignment. So I wanted to, you know, the more I got into it, and, you know, I don't write with an ending in mind. I write to discover on a daily basis what's going on with these people. And so little by little, I realized that Dominic, in his own way, was damaged by their upbringing. And then it calls into question, you know, things like nature or nurture, which is the dominant one. Did you know, did Thomas develop the disease because of his environment or because of his biochemistry? I ended up not, you know, not coming to any conclusion about that, but I investigated. And I, I think probably fiction writers don't need to answer questions. They just need to ask them.
0: There's <laughs> one perk of fiction writing. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Well, that is a really interesting story. I would never have guessed that that was based on a true occurrence that someone had actually done that. And I'm assuming the Depression-era man also took out his own eye, like he did his hand. Oh, my gosh. He took out his
1: eye first and was locked away in the hospital, given electroshock treatments. And this is back in the 1940s. And he told me, he said, I had to be cagey or or else they'd keep giving me those things. So he said, I worked in a defense plant. He worked in a tannery and he said, I promised that I would go back and work, you know, in this defense plant if they would let me out. And they did let him out. And then a year to the day later, he cut off his hand. It's a, it, and there is a biblical dictate in there. You know, if thy right eye sinneth, you know, pluck it out, you know, for the Lord and, and you know, cut off thy right hand and so forth. I, do, when I When I went on a book tour back in 98, 99, I had many people come up to me from the audience afterwards and say, did you, did you write that based on so-and-so? And, you know, they, they gave me names that I didn't know. And I realized that, you know, that had motivated a lot of people to mutilate themselves. And, you know, there were a lot of examples of that.
0: Wow. When you were on book tour, did people ask if you shared some of these pacifist beliefs?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. And I was, you know, this was this was in the time... After the Gulf War, but, you know, mm-hmm. the, you know, the wars were still stirring around. And I was very, you know, I was very, you know, candid about that. Yes, I do. I do feel that war is a waste and I still feel that way. And so ironically, here's this guy, Peter Mayock, who, you know, was certifiably crazy, in, you know, to some people. And yet he and I thought alike in terms of, you know, politics.
0: Interesting. When you were working on this book, did you have to do a lot of research on paranoid schizophrenics? Or did you, like, did you go? I know you've done a lot of in depth work at different prisons. Did you do similar work at, at state institutions like Hatch and all the rest?
1: No, what happened was see, I had grown up in Norwich, Connecticut, which housed the largest state facility, you know, for the mentally ill. Huge campus, lots of different buildings and so forth. And when I was a kid, You know, I would be riding in my parents' station wagon in the backseat. And whenever they drove by this facility, I would, you know, I would be curious about it and a little bit scared by it, but also fascinated. And it just seemed mysterious to me. I never walked the grounds until I started writing this novel. I learned somewhere along the way that my own grandfather, my maternal grandfather, who was an Italian immigrant, had been housed in the last years of his life, not only at that prison, but in the forensic Building, you know, with the bars on the windows. He had uh, he had committed a criminal act against my grandmother. He had a brain tumor, and it t- it had turned him violent, and he tried to kill my grandmother. I, yes. I knew my I knew my grandmother and loved her very much, but my grandfather I didn't know at all. You know, deep dark family secret. You know, you know, sort of old school Italians. You didn't you know you didn't talk about. You know, the shame of this and so forth. So I didn't know anything about him until I was about a teenager. So in some ways, I think I was reaching out without realizing it while I was writing. I think I was reaching out to just to create a grandfather in the vacuum of the one I didn't know anything about. But of course, the grandfather I created is not a nice guy. Uh, Yeah,
0: I was gonna say you could have made him a little warmer and fuzzier if you were gonna make yourself a grandfather, but.
1: (laughs) But anyway, it it came from that too, You know that uh, my curiosity about mental illness. Did I do a lot of research? Well, the first research I did was I got myself a tour of the Norwich State Hospital in its closing days. It's closing down building by building. I think there were two buildings left. And this was in the, in the, it would have been the early 90s. And during the tour that I got, I buttonholed a, a psychiatrist who happened to be walking by and I was introduced to him and I said, hey, Doc, I got this character. And at that point I had started writing Thomas, but I didn't know, you know what his mental illness was. And I said, so this guy is saying this and he's doing this and so forth. And he was the one who said to me, sounds like paranoid schizophrenia. So now it was incumbent on me to learn all I could about that disease it 's not in my family, thank goodness, but i I really felt like you know I needed to do my homework and the best homework i i mean obviously i read I read a lot of books I read a lot of articles but the the most useful research I did was talking to people you know uh, family members of people who have this disease, psychiatric nurses, that kind of thing.
0: Wow. And then you end up writing a 900 page book about it. How, (laughs) how did you do that? How did you keep it all straight? I know you said you don't have you didn't have an ending in mind. But was this like you just did you write it by hand? Did you write it on the computer? Did you have papers everywhere? Like, what was it like? And how long did it take for you to craft the whole narrative?
1: Yeah, well, She's Come done my first novel, I had written all on in longhand on, with big pens and loose-leaf paper. But then I got, you know, very modern <laughs> with number two, and I had one of those 800-pound computers with, with dot maker's printer and all that kind of stuff. And so I started writing, you know, with the technology that was available at the time. And it just sort of lived in the hard drive of my computer for years. I had index cards all over the wall in the office where I wrote so that if I forgot a section or if I forgot something that had happened or a date or something, I could just look up and and see that. So I had those kind of visual aids. I don't know, it took me six years to write that novel. Somewhere around year number four, I decided, well, you know, I should probably print this out to see how long it is and and then that dot matrix printer was still going about an hour and a half later i said uh oh <laughs> who, who the hell is going to read you know a book this long but you know i just kept going because i needed i needed to find out what was going to happen and when it came in at about 900 pages i with a great deal of trepidation i sent it off to my editor and she said the whole story was worth it and they were going to they were going to print it you know with some editing but as is so
0: Wow, I was that's lucky. amazing! You're, I mean, it wasn't luck. I mean, it's really fantastic. I wonder if that would happen today if people, if editors, would be like, "Sure, no problem." Nine hundred pages. I feel like it's lo- It's harder and harder to do that. But yeah,
1: I think I think because of the technology and maybe other other factors too. I think I think all of our attention span is sort of reduced from what it used to be. But I don't know. I don't know. Thank goodness too. Film Nation and HBO decided to go with a. A six-episode series as well.
0: That's true. Although when it ended on Sunday, I was I was sad. They, you know, sometimes they do two at once in the beginning, but no, just one at a time. So we have we have to wait. Yeah. <laughs> how did you always know you wanted to be a writer? Like, is this something that you always aspired to, or you, uh, like, how did you end up doing? She's come undone. How did that? How did not to take too much of your time, but just um, how do you realize you're such a gifted writer? How does that happen?
1: Well, I, first of all, I would quibble on whether. How gifted I am, and I, I always feel sort of apologetic about anything that I've written. I hate it when I go to a reading of a book that I'm, I'm giving a reading of a book that I've published, sometimes years before. And I hate it when people are sitting in the audience reading along from their copy of the book because I'm still fixing it, you know, from in front of the <laughs> microphone. I'm I'm changing this and that and everything because you know I feel that my writing is you know imperfect. But as far as how I started, I didn't want to be a, a writer. I talked to a lot of writers who were journaling when they were, you know, eight nine years old. That wasn't me. I was too busy, you know, plopped in front of the TV, while, you know, watching things. But I did always draw, and I love drawing still. I did, you know, when I wasn't watching TV, I was drawing, and sometimes doing both at the same time. And I think that was, without realizing, that was my leg up into preparing to be a fiction writer. Also, as far as She's Come Undone is concerned, I grew up in a very girl-centric neighborhood. I have two older sisters. I always wanted a brother. That never happened. And every other kid on the street on McKinley Avenue where I grew up was a girl. And there there was one boy, Vito Signorino, but whenever I went outside, he used to throw rocks at me. So, oh, no. you know, he would, it wasn't exactly good material for a playmate. Anyway, so I was a, I wasn't really such a lonely kid, but I was a solitary kid. Occasionally I would be, you know, cast in some fantasy thing that my sisters and their friends would be, you know, they were one time they were, they were nurses at a hospital and they let me play with them so that I could be the patient and they could, you know, give me shots. They would stick, you know, common pins into my arm and stuff like that. But other than that, I would kind of be an observer of their weird games and, you know, play. And so I think that's not a bad thing, you know, if you're going to grow up to be a writer, particularly of a writer of a book with a female character who is speaking to the readers. And so, I, you know, I mean, all this is, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking, you know, this is looking back at a life. But I think all of those things, and also the fact that I was a high school teacher for about 25 years, and about maybe nine years into teaching, writing, you know, in the, in the English classroom, I became a writer myself. I hadn't, you know, I hadn't been that, been that in the early years of my teaching. And when I started writing fiction, I threw out all that I thought I knew about how to teach writing. And instead of assigning writing, I would play games with the kids to figure out so that they could figure out what they wanted to write about or, or more importantly, what they needed to write about. And so what they needed to write about was themselves, you know, being adolescents. And so now I'm on the receiving end, particularly with the girls, of a lot of confessional kind of writing. And I think that helped me to, you know, I certainly didn't steal anybody's life or story or anything, but I think that helped me to figure out the voice of Dolores. In that.
0: Interesting. Wow. Well, I'm glad you weren't. I mean, I can't imagine you being my high school English teacher and then going on to write all these books. I feel like I would be very intimidated in that classroom.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, they didn't know that was going to
0: happen. Yeah. Okay. Fine. That's true. That's (laughs) true. (laughs) Well, once you started writing and realized you were let's pretend you're not gifted just to make you feel better, but I can believe what I believe. But anyway, let's just say, let's at least both agree that you are a writer. So now that you agreed that you're a writer what kept you going like what did you like about it and what made you keep turning out beautiful books or let's not say beautiful books okay what was it about it that appealed to you the most what did you love about it or what 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 kept you coming back to starting new projects
1: i think i think and this has happened with every single novel that i've written i think i'm on, i'm i'm working on number 7 right now but i had starting novels is always difficult for me i spin my wheels for a long time before i get traction on something and and start going and i have to fall in love with and in worry about the character in whose voice i'm speaking it's only then that i can sort of move forward and like i said i don't you know i don't plan out you know a plot line or I don't know what the climax is going to be that I can write toward. I'm sort of envious of writers who can do that, but that's not me. And so it's the daily discovery. And on the best writing days, it's the surprises that occur in the middle of the writing. You know, I'll I'll maybe plan out what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden, it turns into something else. And I like chasing, chasing those surprises. I certainly didn't write for you know, for royalty checks or anything like that. I still don't. I'm not am not a very good money manager. My wife is, you know, she's the controller. You know, she's the accountant in our in our relationship. So she handles that. You know, that's how I do it. You know, I And think, what...
0: I'm sorry. I was gonna... I just want to know what your latest book is about.
1: Yeah, I can talk a little bit about that. I, you know, I write... I realize I write to address my fears lots of times. And one of my biggest fears when my kids were little and now that I have little grandchildren, we have a we have a grandson who's five and two granddaughters who are two years old and I think seven months old. Aww. And so my fear has has sort of been relegated to fear of my grandchildren's safety. And what I'm writing about is a guy in the voice of a guy who is incarcerated doing a three-year prison sentence for involuntary manslaughter because he has backed his car up without realizing that one of the kids was, you know, was there. So it's a dark beginning, but I'm, you know, I'm rooting for this guy and I'm rooting for his marriage, which is crumbling because of this. And I'm also, you know, I've, 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 I've done that volunteer work in the prison. So I have that kind of knowledge, even though I, you know, volunteered in a women's prison, but, you know, I've got, you know, a lot of the material about, you know, the restrictions and the, and the, you know, the craziness and the abuse of power that goes on in prison. So I'm writing both his prison experience and what happens when he gets out of prison.
0: Wow. Sounds really good. <laughs> well, whatever happens while you're spinning your wheels, you end up with these great ideas. So I guess that's just part of the process.
1: <laughs> okay. Hopefully that'll
0: You've been so generous of your time. Just one last question: Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? I know you must you've, you've sprinkled some already, but just any parting advice?
1: Yeah, it's the same advice that I always give people who are sort of at the at the starting gate of writing, or or who want to write a book, or who want me to write their book. You know, oh, I got a great story. Do you want to write it? But but if you're if you're serious about writing, then I think that you what you need to do do is dispel your fantasies about what's gonna happen when it's finished. What you need to do is get excited about what's happening as you're writing it. Reject any fantasy you have of bestseller you know? That's a crapshoot, you know? That's like winning a lottery if it's gonna happen. Um, but um, you, what you need to do is humble yourself to the process. And you need to realize that nobody gets it right in first draft. My first drafts are kind of embarrassing, actually. But you know, you 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 humble yourself to know that that real writing comes in rewriting and revising. I also feel that if people do what I did, which is um, join a writing group and stay with it and get not only give feedback to other writers but also receive feedback in a humble and generous way. That. Both of those things teach you how to be a writer. Excellent.
0: Well, thank you so much. Thank you for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and this Instagram Live. And I'm so excited to watch the rest and <laughs> of your show. And now that I I read it in, after college and I'm reading it again, and it's just, this is such a treat for me and for my listeners, I'm sure. So thank you so much and congratulations.
1: Thank you. And despite the technical difficulties at the beginning, I really enjoyed this exchange. So you you. You had great questions. And I was instantly once I once I once I mastered the technology, I was instantly comfortable being your interview.
0: Oh good. I'm so glad to hear that. That makes me happy. <laughs> Sorry about my kids. I can't believe it. But tell anyway, me. these things happen. <laughs>
1: can, you, can you tell me their names and their ages?
0: I'll tell you their ages, but they're five and almost seven. And then I also have twins that are about to be thirteen. Oh um, wow. Yeah
1: identicals or fraternal?
0: Fraternal, boy, girl. Although I do have identical twin uncles. So I had them in mind as I was reading about Dominic and Thomas. So.
1: My wife and I are doing, well, our kids, our grandkids live in New Orleans and uh, uh, we're doing like literacy lessons. We have we have class with our five-year-old Ethan every weekday and sometimes on the weekends too. Aww. That's a lot of fun.
0: That's so nice to do that. Yeah, no, I try to homeschool and... I don't know. I don't know who's more frustrated, them or me, but.
1: (laughs) I don't know how people do it.
0: (laughs) I don't know. Just doing our best every day, one day at a time. (laughs) Well, thanks so much. It was really fun and have a great day. And I'll be watching this Sunday again, every Sunday till it's over. (laughs) Thank
1: you very much. And I just want to tell all your your listeners and your viewers to stay safe and and stay healthy.
0: Thank you. And to you too.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: Today's episode has been sponsored by Violets Are Blue, the organic small-batch skincare company that's giving back to women in treatment for breast cancer. Use code ZIBI20 for 20% off skincare.com Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibi at ZibbyOwens.com.